the future of SMART, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the award-winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Today's episode is the third of a series in which we're exploring some of the structures we need to interrogate if we're going to build an education system that works for and is accessible to all students, especially those who are most marginalized in the current system. We began with a conversation with Laurie Gagnon in episode 24 about competency-based education and moved on to explore school design principles with Jenny Curtin in episode 25. As I mentioned in my introductions to these conversations, a lot of our efforts to improve schools begin by using school templates that were invented during the scientific revolution in Europe. These templates were designed to efficiently deliver content to students and focused on developing a fairly narrow set of skills. Over the last 30 years in the U.S., as we work to innovate in education, we've often neglected to intentionally deconstruct these templates. Without doing this, it becomes very hard to design for the broader set of outcomes that reflect what the science of human development and learning tell us young people need to thrive during their formative years and into adulthood. My guest today is Mia Howard, managing partner at New Schools Venture Fund, where she leads the Innovation Schools Investment Area. She and her team work with educators who are pursuing bold visions for schools that embrace expanded definitions of success, equity, and innovation. I really appreciated Mia's candor in sharing her own journey as an education leader, what she learned as a school founder, and how she continues to work at shifting her own deep-seated assumptions about the very purpose of education. Her personal journey mirrors an evolution in New School's investment strategy and its most recent efforts to support a generation of leaders dedicated to building more human-centered programs. A recurring theme in our conversation is the critical role mindset shifts play in ensuring that the concept of human-centered, liberatory education moves beyond rhetoric and into the everyday experience of educators and learners. Join us as we continue to explore the kinds of design choices programs can make to build human-centered experiences and what Mia and her team are learning about the kinds of systems we need in the education sector more broadly to support this kind of work. Welcome, Mia. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'd love to start where we always start, which is a bit about your personal journey, since we know that where we come from always deeply informs the work that we end up doing. So tell us a bit about how you got to the work you do today in education. I grew up in New York City public schools in the 80s and 90s during the heyday of gifted and talented programs. And I was labeled gifted before I started kindergarten. And so there began a decade plus journey of learning in a system that entrenched inequities between students who had certain privileges, in my case, parents who were former educators and created a home full of books and rich learning experiences between birth and PK4, and others who did not, usually tied to income and race and ethnicity. 
But if you looked at any of the classrooms I attended from nursery school all the way up to AP courses in high school, the classrooms were racially and socioeconomically diverse. But what that masked is that students that did not track into those programs, the majority of students in neighborhood schools in New York City, were minoritized and living in systemic poverty. And school was a place for them that enshrined low expectations. And so I started to develop that awareness in middle school when I attended a magnet program within a neighborhood school. And so every day I was faced with this daily contrast. I could see on the one hand, rigorous coursework and agentic learning in my classrooms, but I could see in the neighborhood program, which by the way was called regular and relegated students to learning in the basement in many cases, classrooms that were filled with educators who had low expectations for students. And that was reflected in everything from the physical environment to the lack of current textbooks, how instructional time was used, the frequency of substitutes in those classrooms. And for all the ways in which gifted and talented programming has been propped up as a good thing, I could still say that in my experience, one thing that was true across learning experiences at the time, whether or not you were tracked into gifted programs or not, was that there was no focus on climate and culture. Bullying was rampant. School was something you had to survive especially in middle and high school. So fast forward 10 years after high school, and at this point I've completed two degrees, had an early career on Wall Street, worked at law firms and the Securities and Exchange Commission, and I started to have this realization at the end of law school that decisions my parents were able to make, and I say able to make because it came from a place of privilege, before I was five, had a flywheel effect that shaped the options and choices I had to determine the course of my life. And I also realized that beyond core academics, Yes, I was successful on those traditional measures, but my education had not prepared me for the real world. We were kind of taught implicitly that relationships don't matter and that the didactic process for learning was only meant to achieve transactional outcomes, a grade on a test, a rank in your high school class. And so that led me on a journey um, to build anew. And I started a school in Nashville, which is also where I went to undergrad. And I returned to that community uh, to create a school that believed every student could be successful in life and that schools have a responsibility to create the conditions within them to enable that to happen while also acknowledging the systemic factors outside of school that make access to quality schooling experiences disproportionate. And so I was especially focused on, in my work, resolving that inequity, but also changing the culture of middle school. Um, I was bullied in middle school. I had low self-esteem in middle school, and so I wanted to create a school where assimilation, isolation, and feelings of inferiority are really rooted out um, in the day-to-day learning experience, and that students can start to really build positive social relationships with their peers. It was truly the hardest thing I've ever done, um, and we were successful in doing what we set out to do, which was interrupt the pattern of students not being prepared to access post-secondary options, still being frustrated, um, or, or, you know, about and realizing that they were not prepared, um, but being funneled through and then taking on unmanageable amounts of student loan debt and in too many cases, not even having a degree or credential to show for it. And so I found it intrepid in response to that um, and also in response to the inequitable gifted and talented programs that I had growing up where I wanted to be able to say, we can and must create high quality learning experiences for every student. And we must do so again while acknowledging instead of ignoring or minimizing the broader systemic context. But since operating schools, I've also been on a journey, well, during and after, that has shaped my current beliefs and perspectives, which is really a lot about um, an evolution in my own thinking about the purpose of school and what school should be. I started 10 years ago in this work, or more than 10 years ago, really thinking about academics as the starting point. And now I think that's shifted a bit. I do think academics and academic press is super important, and it needs to happen alongside a culture and climate 
that's not just a container for learning to happen, but good and important in their own right. Like we should care just as much about the learning experiences, the relationships, the experience of school, as much as we care about the outputs and outcomes of school. And so why this work matters to me is because I do see that there's a unique role philanthropy can play um, in supporting the design of new schools. Uh, and, you know, we can provide risk capital to the field, create a venture community of support. We can really bet on proximate and underestimated leaders and give them the space and dream capital they need to build new human-centered models. And we might disagree about, or obviously you, we could debate about whether or not philanthropy should have that kind of power, but it does have a signaling function that's super important to recognize and harness for good. And um, and now you are at New Schools Venture Fund. And I was as I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking back to a charter school meeting that I went to about seven or eight years ago. And there were a number of philanthropists and philanthropic organizations on the stage. And there were a lot of leaders of color. And there was a big conversation at the time about which schools were being developed and supported by philanthropy and what many leaders of color believed they wanted for their community, but were not being supported to build. And to your point about signaling functions, I think we have seen, and New Schools has has been one of the leaders in this, a real um, effort to invest in a broader kind of kind of portfolio of schools. So I'd love it if you could tell us a bit about the evolution of New Schools' work in the area of school design development. Yes. So New Schools is a venture philanthropy that is supported by a belief that we must build a better education system by connecting people, resources, and ideas. And we've been bridging the gap between those with capital and those with the courage to put that capital to work on the front lines of education. And as you said, starting in 2015, we really started to interrogate that question of whose dreams get a shot of coming true and realizing that often it was people who were more networked, often white affluent leaders who were bet on given that risk capital. And we weren't making similar investments in the leaders of color who had similarly bold ideas, but were just more often underestimated in their ability to accomplish them. And so we actually turned to 25 this year. And over that 25 year history, we have invested in entrepreneurs working to improve the education system. And I see that kind of happening over time in two key phases. Phase one was when New Schools was an, was an early pioneer in charter school funding. We made our first investment in Aspire Public Schools in 1999 and created an accelerator fund in 20, uh, 2002 that focused on the development and growth of high quality nonprofit charter management organizations. Today, those early investments now support so many schools around the country. I think we're at like 360K students impacted through those early investments. And uh, the Credo study that came out earlier this year actually showed that among the schools that were featured in that study that were also new school venture fund supported, they're getting like an additional 33 days of reading, learning every year, an additional 55 days of math learning every year. And close to a decade ago, we started to have this real realization that, you know, we only got so far with mandates like No Child Left Behind that kind of winnowed us into this narrow focus on ELA and math. And so as we evolved our school design strategy in 2015, we knew it was important to build on that foundation, but incorporate lessons into a new funding approach. And so at a time when most funders were focused on scaling existing CMO networks, we went back to our roots to support the next generation of innovative school leaders through school design and launch grants. And these innovators were focused on creating schools to your point, that would equip young people with not just the academic foundation, but also the habits, mindsets, and skills 
that they need to be successful in life and versus a focus on scale that really measured success by reach. Also valuing other ways of knowledge sharing and uh, spreading good practice. That doesn't always have to mean opening up, you know, several sites of a school or several types of a school model. It could also be going deep within a particular community. And we often see leaders of color in particular say that their version of scale is going deep and providing um, a, con a, a continuum of care for students that also extends outside the school walls. And that that kind of partnership that's lifting up a whole community is more desirable. In talking about the work, you use this term human-centered, and um, that is part of the frame of this podcast, right? distinguishing between efforts that are aimed at improving schools that are fairly conventional in their design and how they think about education and the purpose of education versus aims that are supported, uh, supporting programs that are more human-centered, right? Coming out of a very different set of assumptions about young people, about the purpose of education and how they're designed. So I just want to ask directly, like, does that distinction make sense to you given New School's work over 25 years? Yes, that distinction absolutely does make sense and resonate. An important principle that we really anchor on here at New Schools is that educational institutions deliver the outcomes they are designed to produce. And so it's really important to start any question or conversation or plan about creating a new by getting back to a conversation about the purpose of education, which is fundamentally, for the leaders that are, we're supporting in our community, is fundamentally different than I think the status quo. I mean, I'm sure, you know, folks listening have probably listened to, or um, read The End of Average, which really talks about this industrial era paradigm of education that specifically was designed to create compliant factory workers. <laughs> and um, we're, we've moved beyond that, right? Like we're in such an interconnected, socially connected world. Um, we're in a precarious time when it comes to geopolitics. We're in a precarious time when it comes to identity development, civics, um, and what it means to really be in community. And so the schools that um, come, come under our uh, tent are schools that say that they are not just committed to an expanded definition of student success, but they're committed to equity. They're committed to new approaches um, and, and relevant approaches. You know, oftentimes we talk about it as innovation, but we often see schools in our portfolio saying innovation is new practiced intentionally for this community because it's been elevated as a priority or need in this community. Contrast that with previous paradigms where oftentimes there was a saviorism of a, a, you know, mythical, magical person coming into a community with all of the knowledge, skill, know-how, and saving this community from itself and moving to an appreciation for community co-design, which actually starts with the community as the asset and the lead founder as someone who's coming in to support and cultivate and, and nourish the assets that are already in the community. Um, and so those paradigm shifts have been powerful for me to see and to also see them now happening across over 100 schools around the country that are in our portfolio. So I definitely want to come back to that kind of way of engaging in the work of design. But if we can step back for a minute, you know, when you think about the schools that you would think of as more human-centered in their approach, how do they talk about their purpose or the purpose of education? Yeah. Um, so I think in terms of just starting with student development at the core, it's a broader focus than academics. It's a purpose to develop students socially, emotionally, um, and in some of the most expansive versions of that framework, like uh, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative's CSD framework, uh, 
It also encompasses cognitive development, physical health. It is a purpose of education that's meant to prepare students um, for success in life, but that's self-determined success in life, not a really narrow, prescriptive, limited way of thinking about success. Um, And then I would say the last is um, less about the future and more about the present, because I think a lot of what I'm talking about is like school as a place where you prepare for a future instead of school as a place that is in the present, <laughs> adding value and adding value because we're, because we are creating communities that define our social contract. And so schools that are appreciative and d- intentional about creating a social contract um, that prioritizes authenticity, vulnerability, you know, people being accepted for who they are, people being accepted when they make mistakes, um, Instead of perfection, like just a learning orientation about constantly being reflective and getting better. Um, so, that's, I think some of the, those are some of the key shifts you would see. Um, I love the last one because I think when you interview young people, it's a theme that comes up a ton that young people say, you know, I'm tired of being told that I have to do something that I hate or that isn't engaging now for the sake of my future. I want to be doing things today that are relevant and meaningful and that bring me joy. And um, so I love that shift. Um, I'm curious, and you mentioned, you know, Jen Zuckerberg's framework, but do these schools think differently and design themselves differently when it comes to thinking about human development and the fact that elementary school kids versus middle school age students versus high school students developmentally are in unique phases, is that something they take into account as they design? When we launched our expanded definition of student success framework in 2015, it anchored on seven culture climate factors, seven social emotional learning competencies that were not, um, or, or I should say were agnostic essentially to the developmental progression. Um, and so it was really through the data capture and reflecting on that data over the last seven years that we were able to say, oh, wow, okay, yes. Like there actually are particular ways that elementary school should be designed to like cultivate certain types of skills and certain types of development. And that, that should vary and be different from what students are focused on um, in high school. And so we do see that. For example, in elementary school, we see um, uh, learning really focused on a sense of connectedness. Um, so starting to just realize like I'm going from peer, maybe maybe low to no peer interaction, depending on what, what kind of access to pre-K or early um, social experiences students have had, to starting to just build the, the capacity to have social interaction. And that starts to vary when you get all the way up to high school to start to more of a focus on a sense of purpose. Students are really about to like be in that final moment before they unleash themselves on the world. And really need to have culminated all their learning experiences to date to like have a perspective on how they want to contribute to society. And then how about the learning experiences and how they think about designing learning experiences and the ways in which they think about assessing the learning as we go along? Yeah. So I would say, again, in the paradigm shift, I would I would say in the before, <laughs> right, learning was very adult-centered. It was teachers, knowledge holder, student as empty receptacle. And now we're seeing more and more um school designers coming to the table, again, in community with families, asking for and then creating student-centered models where students are recognized for the funds of knowledge that they're bringing to the classroom. It's a totally asset-based frame. We're seeing more focus on learning as interdisciplinary. Um, so rather than, this gets more true, um, especially by middle and high school, but this idea that um, students need to be able to make connections between 
and it's like not just English language as knowledge, but like when you marry English content with history and with science, right? It's about learning about the interconnections between those three things so that you can go into the world knowing how to test ideas, knowing how to persuade, knowing how to to innovate, to engineer, to create. And like that comes not from discrete coursework, but from making connections in, inter in interdisciplinary courses. The other shift we see is learning as inquiry. Um, and so again, with this frame away from the teacher as knowledge holder and disseminator, uh, but really creating classrooms that engage students around big questions and then an integrated coherent set of learning is designed to help students answer those questions, often with opportunities to access uh, real-world learning experiences, hands-on learning experiences. And so we often see project-based learning come up a lot in the models that these types of schools are anchored on because of that interconnectedness, because of the ability to do, um, instead of just demonstrate with like rote learning, um, that they've uh, been able to make connections and build knowledge. And would you say they have more of a, sh a focus on sort of competency-based learning versus kind of just standards-based? Is that a shift that you see as well? Yes. And so that first starts to show up in their theory of change where they talk about the graduate profile. Um, and so in that early planning work, in that definition of what school should be and what the purpose is, they get they start to get really clear about, you know, a limited set of competencies like collaboration or communication or resilience in change. I mean, you know, you could just imagine it's all relevant to whatever the community decided to prioritize. Um, but then they have to do the work of aligning model components and learning experiences to those competencies. And they aren't all, they aren't all given equal attention in every day or every unit, but over the course of a year, and especially over a multi-year progression, you would hope to see balanced attention to all of those uh competencies. And then it usually cul culminates in, in a different perspective on measurement. And so again, moving away from uh, standardized testing as the sole measure of learning, but really starting to broaden and look at uh, demonstrations of learning, um, such as portfolio, or um, actually bringing in outside partners in uh, career connected learning models or real world learning models where students are actually engaging with community often and early in their learning is getting uh, stakeholder perspectives. Like to what extent did you see, you know, this student grow in their ability to communicate effectively with others, to communicate a, a point of view and support it with evidence? You know, like there's those types of things that also start to come. Um, and so it starts to value self-assessment and peer assessment as just as valid as um, a standardized assessment. So I'm I'm thinking about somebody who might be listening to this and going, gosh, okay, so you've said a couple of things that could sound scary. You're like, communities are determining the things that they are focusing on. So all of a sudden, it might look slightly different in different communities. You've got kind of project-based and you've got different ways of assessing, which might mean, well, where's the content? Where's the rigor of these? So how are you seeing these models grapple with these these ideas and these concepts that I think have driven so much of the education agenda over the last 20 years, like equity of access to opportunities and equity of access to high level kind of rigorous learning. Talk to us a little bit about that for folks who may not have had a chance to see these programs in action and why you feel confident that like it is actually meeting the bar of these values. Yeah, because I think oftentimes the shift is posited as a either or, 
And I actually don't think it's necessarily that. I think it's about having a different starting point. So again, coming back to this idea that um, we're going to start with bringing a team together to rally around a different purpose for education shifts everything that comes after. And so what you see there is you see um, schools evolving from seeing themselves as institutions that are are static with a fixed purpose and at and, and instead of moving into like an it, an understanding of an institution as an organism it's going to continue to evolve it's going to recreate itself over time to continue to be relevant to the learning needs of a community you know you mentioned people fearing trusting community you know fearful of what it means to trust community to be self-determining of the outcomes that they want to see for their students and for the broader community but i would just say the, what's been inspiring to me about how schools are taking on this change is that they're fundamentally undergoing a shift that says we're going to become a learning organization. And they're saying we are going to not just focus on the content, which is what teachers are teaching, but also what teachers are learning, but we're also going to focus on design features. How are students learning? How are adults learning? Um, and oftentimes we see schools get really clear about the codification of student-facing elements. So equitable teaching practices, classroom climate and environment. Like I mentioned, that was absent in my own um, education, but there's now a, a healthy focus on that as well as instructional materials. But what often doesn't get developed or shared and codified is the systems and conditions that enable all those things, hiring and talent development, defining how the system is going to operate as a learning organization. What are the policies and practices that give students and educators the flexibility to not just follow a playbook, but have a set of values-based guidelines that shape decision-making and that ultimately are agentic because it gives leaders, educators a chance to define and redefine the what, but not forgetting the, keeping the why as the core. Um, and that's what needs to endure. You know, you've used this word shift a lot, and a lot of the things that you're describing um, aren't so much tactics or specific strategies. In fact, we can go to many schools that might use a lot of the same words, but we see that what's happening is really different. And so it's something about a mindset. I think you use the term paradigm kind of shift, right? Um, talk to us about that, because I think it's one of those subtle complicated things um, that we know is super important in driving what comes after, yet really hard to control for. So how has that part of your work, your thinking about your work, um, kind of evolved um, in terms of the mindset shifting or mindset identification? Yeah. So, you know, when we started this work eight, eight years ago. We had eight schools in the portfolio. So a really tiny, small group of leaders who were willing to go on this learning journey with us. And now that we have 122 schools in the portfolio that all espouse similar beliefs and assumptions about young people and what they're capable of, what we've had to do is operationalize um, in our work what it looks like to find leaders who are bringing humility to the table, are bringing a learning orientation to the table, who are bringing a, a deep belief that every student even with all the systemic barriers that they face, must have a self-determined future and that we are an integral part of how that happens. Um, and so it, requ it requires leaders being able to both see clearly 
the systems and the limitations of the current, but also to be visionary and imagine a different future and see it and operationalize it while you're bringing people along. So <laughs> it's deep, it's deep, hard mindset work. Cause you can imagine you're starting at first with people who are seeing, but maybe not believing. And what does it look like to support those types of educators on their journey all the way up to people who are, you know, uh, typically the lead founder, right. C- comes first by believing before they can see it. <laughs> and so uh, bringing those two, those two groups together is a really, is really powerful. Um, and I think, what one of the things that we had to do in our diligence process is we ask leaders questions like, can you talk, talk us through something you once deeply believed that you don't believe anymore? Or talk us through sometime a, a time where you changed someone's mind about something. How did you do that? Um, to really first try to get at, it, are, are we engaging with leaders who are critically thinking? So they're able to abandon ideas or beliefs that where they have new and better information to support, right? And that would support a change in their thinking. And then also, do you have the ability not just to be a vision creator, but to inspire others to follow or lead alongside you in your vision or to or for you to follow and take the lead by following, which is often what we see when you mentioned earlier, going back to what we see at the earliest stages of school design has been a big shift. It's been leaders not coming through too high minded or even in my own experience, right? I named I started my school partially in response to my own education. And so having to really pivot to having leaders say, I'm actually going to set that aside. There may be a point in time in which that experience is relevant. And my lived my lived experience absolutely matters. But what I need to privilege and put a focus on is this community's broader experience of the schooling um, system and what new experiences or new models they want to see um, that may not yet exist there. I love that question. Um, as you think about your own education journey and your work in education, what's something that you used to believe that you don't believe anymore? because of this journey? That's a great question. Um, I know it is. You gave it to me. <laughs> I, um, it's a circle for me. So uh, I was pretty convicted in my early tw- early to mid-20s um, that schools were community infrastructure. Essentially, you can't expect to see schools that achieve transformative outcomes unless there are conditions outside the school that enable that to be the case. And in really crude ways, right, because I was early career experiences were in high finance, it was like very much just about dollars. I would think about the systems of inequities baked into our public school funding formulas. And I would just be able, you know, my thought was like, well, that that explains pretty much a lot of what we see here. Um, And then it was in law school, you know, where uh, I met a lot of alum of a very notable teacher development organization, which we're all familiar with, (laughs) that uh, has really changed the landscape of education over the last 30 years, who would say to me, no, education is the great equalizer. You don't have to, you know, nothing else has to change. You can actually like help every student have a self-determined future just within the factors that are within a school's locus of control. And that was compelling to me because the other alternative seemed too enormous. I was like, okay, I don't know how you, you know, totally do systems change that accounts for the inequities in the housing system alongside criminal justice, alongside uh, food insecurity, you know, just name every system that's failed and minoritized people. Uh, and so here within the boundaries of a school, you can help students be resilient in the face of. Um, and now I'm at a point, especially after the last three years, um, which was marked by, you know, uh, health crises, 
um, resurgence of racial equity in the forefront of our conversation, backlash <laughs> against the racial equity, that the interconnectedness is just too hard to ignore. And so school leaders now are having to be principal and advocate and connector to systems and community resources and bring therapeutic services into the school. You know, like it's it, the, the lines between what school is and should be are getting more blurred, leading directly to what you mentioned earlier, which is the idea and feeling, and it's very real, that the role we've asked teachers to take on is unsustainable. And so I think there's still a fundamental systems question about uh, what services live within a school, what services live with, you know, beyond a school, and how do we break down those silos so that students can still get what they need, but that the teacher isn't, or the school isn't considered the only place where students are receiving the, the supports and um, services and learning that they need. Thank you for taking that detour with me. Um, so I want to get back <laughs> to mindset. Um, yeah. You know, in the, we talk in this podcast about a way of being in the world that does feel very modern, very Western, very um well, the term I've used in the past is sort of left hemispheric in the way that it thinks about efficiency and it thinks about like what the work of our lives is. And there's a different way that's a much more holistic indigenous view of the world, view of ourselves. And we see in lots of conversations today, people pointing at whether it's the idea of rest as important or the idea of having balance in our lives or the resurgence of kind of wellness and breathing and all mm -hmm. that. So we see all mm -hmm. of us are sort of straddling between these two worlds. I'm curious whether you're finding yourself needing to do intentional mindset shifting work. In other words, not being able to just find leaders who are there or have made that shift for themselves, but actually having to intentionally make something visible, give experiences that kind of um, maybe make them wobbly enough to kind of like see something differently. Is that work that you're doing? Because it seems like it's going to be a barrier yes. to the kind of spread of this work at the rate that we would like if we can't figure out how to help make those mindset shifts happen. And what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to um, answer your question first by saying something that we see as a common pitfall, um, even for school founders that in any conversation, you would walk away feeling aligned and shared in this commitment to human-centered learning um, is uh, a pitfall first between rhetoric on the one hand versus rhetoric and action on the other. Um, and so oftentimes we can see that in the language choices that schools are using to describe liberatory approaches, they've nailed the taxonomy. They can speak to it. It sounds like it's happening. But when you actually visit the school and see it with your own eyes, and I'll give you a concrete example, you'll see things like schools say they want schools to be places where students are engaged and enjoy learning. So they'll layer on joy factor over a system of discipline um, that still is undergirded by design choices that say that students need to be A, entertained or B, controlled. Um, but it's all mass in this language about like engagement and students Joyful learning, have jo joyful <laughs> learning, and a gentle, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's one of those masks. It's a, joyful learning is a mask for not fundamentally changing the system, <laughs> and then being able to just glom on joy and hope that it all works out. Um, the second challenge we see or common pitfall is reacting to the past versus building the future. And so this is often what we see in the area of school climate and culture, where we've seen again 
articulations of visions for how students interact at school, um, how to create safe learning environments, which are notable aims. Like we want to create safe learning experiences for students. And we know that there's been backlash to early eras of school reform, notably uh, no excuses models that were considered punitive for adults and kids. And model descriptions now will say that we're not adopting a no excuses mindset, but they will not say what they affirmatively are doing (laughs) to define culture and climate and human-centered practices where students will feel known, seen, valued. Um, And oftentimes where we do see codification of that work, uh, they skip to the checklist thing. Here are the things you need to do to create a positive relationship with a student. Instead of, no, that's not like, people need to make those choices in the moment (laughs) about what, about how to build relationship, how to lead authentically. But it's more about like having a shared container, like I said, for values-based decision-making where you're getting clear on the values. But I caution against um, those two pitfalls. And so on the mindset side, what that's meant is we have four anchors for the coaching and development we provide to school leaders in our portfolio. Um, One is this expanded definition of student success, and we're helping schools move from traditional measures to adopting a broader set of measures that care and give attention to student development outside of academics um, and the culture and climate of schooling. We have a through line around uh, coalition building, which is about that relational work um, that gets into the mindset shifts, that gets into creating systems for change through people work. Like it's all deeply relational. And so we support venture leaders in seeing their role, not just as an instructional leader or CEO, but as a community leader. That's the work of the coalition building. We have a third through line around continuous improvement um, and caveat, like continuous improvement as a phrase is very old paradigm language (laughs) of that's like tinkering instead of transforming. And I'm acutely aware of that. And so we're probably going to do some redesign work on that principle. But essentially, it's asking the question I was getting at earlier, like how are systems getting better over time? What is the organization's commitment to learning? And how does the organization learn and get better? And we um, have partnered with school leaders to help them articulate that. And then the fourth piece um, is leadership development, which is arguably the most important because it's about the intangibles, right? It's everything else can get collapsed into a list of things to do but it's in our leadership development strand that we're really trying to get at. It's about a way of being as a leader, as a system, as educators, Um, where a checklist orientation, people will feel that. People will feel the inauthenticity of you going through the motions, (laughs) trying to nail a particular strategy or practice. And it's more, again, about like bringing people into deep conversation and alignment on values so people can operate from those values in their decision-making, in their choices, in their words, in their actions. I want to I want to stay on that last one because um I was looking at a lot of the like best books of the year list recently and it's surprising to me how many of them seem to be pointing at the idea that we all think we know how to be in relationship with other people in authentic real ways right but there are books about how to ask questions of people how to be in conversation with strangers right cuz i'm curious what you're observing what you're seeing do we know actually how to be in authentic relationship with one another is that something most of us have been taught or cultivated and if not what are some of the things you are doing to help develop those muscles in in your leaders 
Yeah, well, I think I think a few things are important to name. One is that the leaders in our portfolio are mostly leaders of color. They are leaders who come from cultures that are very relational, that um, prioritize individual development and knowing yourself, um, prioritize self-reflection. Um, and so what I've often seen is when there's this uh, tendency to reduce relationships into a list of steps, that orientation isn't typically coming from the leaders in our portfolio. Um, it's a very westernized, uh, white dominant culture frame for relationship building. Um, and so we, um, it feels, it feels like a cop out to say some of this is intuitive, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, I do think that there are just ways of knowing, um, that are shaped by our early cultural experiences, um, that we help, we help to validate in the leaders we serve. So, you know, we're also not treating the leaders that we support in our portfolio um, with that same deficit mindset that we're trying to avoid with students. So we assume that they know (laughs) how to do this and we want to give them the space, the courage, um, the at-bats, you know. Um, And so oftentimes we flip it rather than saying prescriptively, here is how you build relationships. We create learning communities, right? Where we ask leaders to bring uh, problems of practice or consultancies to the table about complex social relationships that they're navigating between their school as an institution and their broader community. Or um, at our last November community of practice, uh, we had a consultant come in and talk about how to navigate challenging and resistant staff. That was not a, a, a session where the consultant spoke for an hour and lectured at um, the educators in the room. Educators brought real life challenges and then talked through out loud how they might approach that while continuing to keep their values core, while continuing to treat people with dignity and things like that. And so it's actually interesting because a lot of what codification has come to mean is like this documentation. Um, and I don't think writing more books or white papers or, you know, how-to guides is the thing that's going to get us to the next. I mean, there's certainly a role. I'm I'm a person that likes to read things, the written word. So like, I'm not saying that there's no value in that. Um, But I've been really inspired by work that like NACA is doing, for example, where they codify a lot of their approaches via video. Like you can go onto their website and see video libraries that talk about how they promote connection um, between the school and students and the land, for example. Um, and so it's not a list of things. It's not how-to guide, but it's illustrative because you can see it. Yeah. And NACA is the Native American Community Academy. And I love that example. And I think the the demonstration, right, in that example of the different modalities of knowing, how can you know, how can you communicate, how do I like that you named it, right? Like, Many of your leaders had access to learning about these things through something other than perhaps school or there. But is there unlearning that has to happen for some of these leaders because they have presumably many of them been successful yes. inside of the So talk to us about the unlearning that has, that has to be done on their part. I think that there's been a assumption at times that finding leaders who are proximate and share identity with the communities they serve is enough. And I'm here to tell you, that it's essential and it's not enough. We all are growing up in this paradigm. We all are existing in the world in a white dominant paradigm, in a Western paradigm. And so, and in ways that, again, reemphasize 
uh, a narrow definition of student success, assimilation, irrelevance, uh, treating students as members of a group instead of individuals. Like those are all things that we are well steeped in and have to work to 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 resist because it's it's the water we all swim in. But I think the work that for me was the hardest was recognizing in myself, even as a black queer woman who's, you know, um, been on a learning journey my whole life and likes to think of myself as reflective. It was in the design and operation of launching a school that I had to own my own role in perpetuating old, old paradigms that no, that no longer serve us. And I think that that actually is the hardest work, um, especially when it's, it can be really tempting to just be othering about it. This is outside of me because I'm victim to it <laughs> instead of also realizing like I am victim to it, but that's why I perpetuate it <laughs> and supporting leaders on that journey. Some of that work has to happen in therapy, to be honest. Like <laughs> it's not all work that uh, can really be addressed well um, in, in the coaching and support that we provide, but we want to help build peer relationships in particular, because there's also this power dynamic, right, of, of, of a funder and how vulnerable leaders may or may not be when interacting across those um, perceived power differentials. Um, but in the peer community, we are definitely hoping that folks are able to find like people who um, have either been where they've been or going where they're going or share different identity and affinity markers. Um, and that in those spaces, there's like that psychological safety to go deeper and to name not just what's happened to you, but how you need to show up differently to create the world we're talking about. This is another illustration of how mindset is not the same thing as the external markers, because I think even in our sort of education reform days and that meeting that I referenced in the beginning, one of the critiques was you brought in leaders of color, but they're leaders of color who epitomize and further the values of the existing system versus leaders of color who are grounded in a different set of values. And this is particularly interesting at a moment where I think philanthropy is talking about, you know, leaders who are proximate to community, the idea that community should you know, be leading with the assumption that communities are homogenous, as opposed to, I live in Denver, the Black community here, not all the same. We have to dig deeper into what we mean with those words. And a lot of it is that kind of different way of seeing or being in the world. So thanks for, for yes. that example. Yes. And it's like, it's been helpful in our racialized world for folks who share identity markers to seek what's common or shared about culture and experiences. And we also still need to embrace people as individuals, um, which is what I hear you saying, because we're not a monolith. <laughs> and when we get reduced to a list of characteristics, which is that essentially wind up usually being stereotypes about people, we miss so much of what makes people human. And we're talking about human-centered models, which is to say we have to pierce through and still value um, like, I'm very proud to be a Black woman, and I hope that in all of my Black womanhood, I'm also still seen as a person who um, can do and be whatever I want. And, <laughs> uh, and, and I want that for, for, for young people, and I want that for um, the adults who support them as well. And so that's the other piece of this, which is um, another cart before the horse tendency we see is that there's so much focus on providing that type of paradigm shift for students but you know, schools may skip over what's the work that adults have to do? What kind of reflection and learning are adults doing to even hold the space for a student to come into a different way of being and knowing? 
Um, and that's been really powerful work when I see that parity of schools designing learning experiences that work not just for kids, but for the adults. And, um, and you know, it's, it's not linear. It's not like you only, it's not like you can't start the work um, with kids unless you've finished the work with adults, but it should be parallel and ongoing. We've got proof of concepts of many of these programs or examples of programs, but one of the noticings is that they've been hard to quote unquote scale or replicate because they are inherently complex and they are living ecosystems of relationship, which you can't just kind of replicate and plop over somewhere else. And, you know, as human beings, it's hard for us to get good at complex things, just the cycle of learning. I always use the example of a manual car for anybody who's had to do it. But it's hard because in the beginning, you're like steering and you're using the gear shift and your foot and the pedals and all the things and you're still trying to drive. So it's really hard. And it gets better over time because expertise and mastery really is about being able to chunk and sort of master complex things. So for something like a human-centered model, it feels particularly useful to have some kind of an instructional model frame where you have the codification of pieces, not because somebody has to take it and replicate it as is, but rather it gives you a starting point for everyone to kind of be on the same page. So a lot of the the models of human-centered that listeners might have heard of, Montessori, expeditionary learning, NACA, big picture learning, right? They have codified in ways that provide a template. Does that make sense to you, given the sort of breadth of the models that you have now supported and the and how you've seen this work evolve over time in this portfolio? Yeah, it does make sense. I have a bunch of thoughts swirling, but I think one is um, really about how codification what it's how it's commonly thought of and then what needs to change about codification to embrace human-centered learning. And then I think to your point, I think there's a question about the depth of what it means. You know, I think what's helpful about seeing existing models that have been fully codified is not taking it wholesale and just plopping it into your context and doing it. I would not recommend that. But what you do get to see is the coherence in the design choices. You know, we want to have um, students who are building and developing social capital and across lines of difference feel comfortable, confident, capable of um, showing up as their full selves and exhibiting curiosity and building strong relationships with others. Great. So then don't have a lunch system that prioritizes orderly, quiet lunch <laughs> if the purpose of school in this type of model I'm describing is to be highly relational and is to build social relationships. You know, you could you can imagine in that kind of model, something aligned and coherent would be a combination of unstructured conversations that can happen at lunch, or if you're really trying to flex the capacity and muscle for students to build relationships across lines of difference, and you might be more intentional about where students sit and uh, what questions or prompts are provided on tables for kids to like grapple with or talk about to give them conversation starters. I mean, I would just say what's what I, what I find valuable about existing articulations is the ability to understand how models in this human-centered world go about designing with coherence in mind. And in the dominant paradigm of codification, it's also thought of as needed to create efficiency and accelerate effectiveness. The thought being that without codification, you know, teams risk recreating the wheel and losing valuable time, thinking about problems that were solved in the past. And that's still valuable, but in the new paradigm, 
Um, I think codification is also saying we need to be in the business of helping leaders and educators stay connected to their purpose. Um, and again, that gives them the flexibility to evolve and change things. But the thing that stays true are the values or the thing that stays true is the lie. Um, and then schools can learn and evolve and grow and be responsive um, in that world. But do, but, and then I also think there's a different, a different role for language like fidelity, consistency um, in the old paradigm that don't necessarily serve us in the new paradigm. It feels important, but maybe less relevant. Um, and in this new paradigm, I would hope that codification could help educators make better human-centered mm. choices. Yeah. And another example, right, this idea of if we care about relationships and we have academics that are <clears throat> that are integrated and understand individualization, multi-age classrooms or teachers looping with students or advisories might make a lot of sense both for the social and the relational and the academic. It also occurs to me that the codification process and having something also gives insight to students themselves about what's happening to the community, mm -hmm. to parents, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. to understand and to have conversations about why these design choices and let's lift up the values that undergirded them so that we all understand and are part of building, maintaining, and evolving the community together, um, as opposed to that just resting totally. with like a handful of people. Um yeah, the first thing I would say in response to that is what I love about what we're seeing in new approaches to codification is that it's leaving a lot of space for the human. <laughs> it doesn't just take something lifted off a page and expect you to implement it. It expects you to interact with it, knowing that uh, a set of humans are going to collectively agree to do or not do a set of things together. And that we need to account for what that context is <laughs> for that set of humans that are making those choices. The other thing um, that is exciting to me when I see new approaches to codification is that we're seeing, um, again, school leaders essentially use codification to build capacity. Um, and it's not the kind of capacity that defined success 10 years ago, where promotion in a lot of highly successful schools was like ability to copy, rinse, repeat. I mean, down to like vocal tone and cadence. Like if you <laughs> go into a lot, if you go into teacher preparation meetings or one-on-one -on -one check ins with teachers. Again, with a lot of the frameworks that were widely disseminated in the last decade. And it led to this like robotic, like <laughs> uh, scripted way of engaging in teacher development um, that again, didn't leave room for the human. And so what I would hope to see is like a, a shift, and we are seeing this in a lot of places, shifts to, again, ways of being that leave room for the relationship to be the thing that's elevated in the in the codification and the supports are around things like, okay, well, what are the design principles for equitable teaching practices? What are the design principles for relational learning experiences? What are the design principles for creating spaces where students feel known, seen, and valued? But again, you have to actually then learn by doing. And learning by doing is the only way because it accounts for the fact that I'm not going to know this student until right, I interact right. with them. <laughs> it's going to be messy and it's going to be complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. how yeah. are you yeah. watching your schools measure their success or think about their success, given that things are messy and things are not going to work? And then how has that impacted how you as a funder are thinking about you know, defining impact, um, measuring success in your own portfolio? Yeah, I love this question. It's something we think a lot about. 
Um, I mentioned it, I mentioned it earlier, but you know, the schools in our portfolio are very young. They are either not yet existent or existing. They, uh, you know, are in their planning year or planning years prior to launch, or they're in their first to third th- years of operation. So really fragile times for schools, especially in this moment, which means every school in our portfolio was designed or launched in, in the COVID era. <laughs> and so these are really fragile institutions. And what we want to see is an opportunity for leaders to get clear on what it takes to have a strong start, which doesn't always mean the same thing in every school, but it does mean starting with a foundation around relationships. It does mean creating the instructional enabling systems such that teachers are starting to build the competence, confidence to execute on coherent curricula. And so I guess I would say like 80% of the schools in our portfolio are charter schools. So they're coming from a context that's highly regulated, supported by authorizers that have really strict frameworks for accountability. And what our school leaders actually need is space. They need more space in the beginning to create the, uh, the firm foundations. Because even in schools like mine, I felt that pressure as a charter school operator to deliver academic results immediately. I thought my school would get closed down within a year if it's not like all at the top of the heap. <laughs> and at the end of the first year of operation, we were like the third highest performing school in the state for the highest combination of growth and achievement in reading. Granted, we were serving only one grade level at the time. <laughs> so we had, you know, some some wins in our sales for that. But um, I burnt out my teachers on that journey. <laughs> and what leaders actually need is space to create the conditions um, that actually create sustainable workforce, that create sustainable learning environments. And that may mean focusing on context and condition setting as opposed to outputs or outcomes in the very beginning. Um, but school leaders are feeling that pressure between the mandate of state testing and whatever other uh, sort of uh, bar, you know, they, they've, they're, they're working to reach in partnership with their authorizers. Um, they feel pressure to like skip some of process. the yeah. the process and, and just try to get quick wins. Um, and that's when we see teacher turnover. That's where we see, I mean, you know, you can get to the, you can get to high levels of proficiency in that narrow definition of success by skipping a lot of things. Um, and in that old paradigm, the end was thought to justify the means, which was like, who cares? You know, there were schools for many, many years in the, in the years where we didn't have social studies as part of the state testing framework that just weren't teaching social studies. Then we wonder why we're here now. We're like this era of disinformation where like nobody knows what end is up. And we're talking about uh, the institution of slavery as, uh, uh, you know, voluntary <laughs> servitude or right, whatever. Right. The, yeah. <laughs> you know, so democracy is at risk. And, and so like, <laughs> democracy, democracy is at risk. And, um, it started with shortcuts. We, we talk a lot about like, oh, it's, you know, this, this particular political party that's responsible for everything that's wrong in our society today. We all made choices <laughs> about what to focus on, what to pay attention to. Um, and so we're basically saying we need to be broader and more expansive. That like them, that's going to require doing things very differently because right now we have set targets and a pace um, for learning that is only achievable when you focus on 
too narrow a definition of success. You're doing the best you can to support the leaders in the schools, giving them longer to develop, to hopefully, you know, build some of those pieces. But fundamentally, if we want more students to have access to these kinds of programs in the public system, are we going to be able to get there unless we have an infrastructure for public education that is designed to reflect the values and the ways of operating inside of human system, human-centered ecological living systems? Like, is there actually a way that we can do this work for all the students and communities that do it without a new public infrastructure? And if so, is there a role for philanthropy to play in helping to make that public infrastructure real? Yes. So short answer is, um, going back to what I said at the outset, right? Like educational systems produce the outcomes that they were designed to achieve. And so we are only going to stay in this world of bright spots or islands of excellence. Um, So the schools that somehow found a way to like pierce through, even though nothing outside of the school was setting up that school to operate the way that it chose to in a human-centered way or deliver human-centered outcomes. And I will say another shift that we've made though is investing in district innovation as well. And so to the point of how do we actually start to see this everywhere, and, and very impressively, I mean, districts in many ways are um, better set up to launch these types of models because they have the scale on the operations side. They have the scale um, that helps the school designer really only have to focus on creating dynamic learning experiences for adults and kids. And in the charter context, too often school leaders are also having to create a district simultaneous to creating a school. And that automatically shifts attention away um, into a bunch of things that, especially based on what we're seeing in some of the district work that we're doing, could be argued to be have diminishing returns. Like charter schools are definitely part of the fabric of public education. They're not going anywhere. And uh, I, as a charter school founder myself, saw a lot of value in the flexibilities that I had to create and design. And I was also in a state where the charter school was not the LEA. So the host district provided a ton of capacity and support I was able to then focus on the teaching and learning. Uh, And that was my chief job. Like I was chief learning, teaching and learning officer (laughs) for the five and six years that I lived there. And I never really, or where I did that work. And I never felt like the work outside of that, the compliance work that comes with starting a district or operating a district was so diminishing of my time that like I couldn't focus on the teaching and learning. But that is absolutely what's happening for charter school leaders in particular, where they're operating in context where they have to yeah. set up a district yeah. alongside a um, school. No, I, I appreciate that. And it's really, um, it's exciting to hear that you're seeing kind of movement. And I think with the Secretary of Education naming that he wants to see new accountability kind of approaches, right? There's invitations, I think, for the public system to kind of, to shift. I think the question is going to be, can we do that coherently? Um, and in ways that kind of say, you know, yes. it's going to be aligned, how we count learning in and out of school, how we assess, how we do accountability, how we yes. prepare educators and like think about who is an educator. So I think that to me, when I think about a new public infrastructure, it's about aligned policies and systems that are coherently supporting human-centered, as opposed to what I think we often see, which is that you try and make one shift in one part of the system, but it's not at all aligned to anything else. And so it, over time, it doesn't move the needle. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, you know, the federal government ha- has an important role to play in helping to create incentives to think more expansively and broaden definitions of success. would love to see 
an initiative that was capitalized as well as Race to the Top was 10 years ago that's focused on broader measures, um, incentivizing districts and you know schools to create theories of change that are broader in what they expect schools to do and be. Um, on the charter side, uh, the National Association for Charter School Authorizers has been on a journey for the last year and a half or so of uh, bringing together authorizers around the country around a broadened definition of student success and figuring out how to help authorizers operationalize that, which is work I'm really excited to see happening. Because like I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of the challenge that we see is that leaders come to us with broad visions for student success. And then as the regulation framework around how they operate comes into focus, it gets winnowed down um, to essentially like traditional measures asterisk or traditional measures plus one or two other things, as opposed to it being a fundamentally different orientation. Last question before we wrap up. Um, You know, the more we want to change how we do education, the more we're going to require community conversations about what's the purpose of education, why might we need to do something differently for your child, and it's going to feel and look really different for you as a parent. I'm curious what you have learned by watching the leaders in your um, portfolio engage communities. Is there appetite for it? Are there some best practices for engaging community in those kinds of conversations? Yeah. I would say what I'm most excited to see is the way founders are engaging communities before the school is even up and running. And again, just to paint a contrast, I came into this work um, without a teaching background, out of law school, where to your point, because of the spaces I had navigated and the rooms I had been in already, I was trusted as a novice leader (laughs) uh, to go build a great school. And I learned what high-performing schools around the country were doing. I came to a community and I was like, hey, your schools are bad. I'm going to go create a new one. It's going to be awesome. Come join me. And didn't leave any space for the community to provide input into or co-design that model. And it was fully based on my own experience. The experiences I aimed at gifted and talented uh, education and then having just come out of a career on Wall Street at the beginning of the last recession, I was really steeped in this belief that I wanted to provide economic liberation for people and provide a model that focused on financial literacy. People said yes, they signed up and they came, but I would never do that again. <laughs> I would never go about, go about it that way. And it was actually new schools six years ago that um, brought leaders together um, to start thinking differently about how schools begin and really starting it with empathy building and community conversation. So do you actually know what the community stakeholders in your in your neighborhood want and believe about their neighborhood schools and their options? Um, do they want more options? Do they want, but do, do they want their neighborhood school to just be great? Do they want different types of models? You've mentioned Montessori, you know, dual, there's dual language models. Like, you know, when you think about the, diversity of models within a system, you want parents to have ample choices to to think about the kind of key learning experiences they want their kids to have. And so we've seen um, a shift from top down, school as a silo, doing for not with, um, to a shift for school design that's really about school as a social center um, with more runway to build and honor relationships. So in the conventional wisdom, you get a one year planning year and then the school is expected to operate. We're seeing philanthropy actually in some cases provide two or more planning years. This is usually local philanthropy to where the school is located. Um, but they're providing multiple runways of, of planning so that you can actually 
learn <laughs> and hear and listen and then co-design together. And these community stakeholder groups are comprised of youth. They're comprised of educators. They're comprised of community leaders. They're com comprised of grandparents. They're comprised, they're comprised of caregivers. It's a really beautiful cross-section in the best of cases where because the school is seen as essential community infrastructure, it's not a conversation that only needs to exist between teachers and students or teacher students and parents, but the whole community has a vested interest in creating uh, powerful schools. Love it. Thank you so much for being with me. And I'm really appreciative of the really important work um, you're doing in the space and sector. Thank you for the conversation and the provocation. Thanks for listening. The Future Smart Podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com. U -L -C -C -A